Hey, Chris. Um, so we've been chatting a little bit today about um, some poetry. And so I'd love to just have a conversation about it, about theology and poetry. Yeah. And I know, I mean, I've, I've made this complaint to you several times in, you know, asking questions about poems. I, I love poetry. I appreciate it in the ways that I am, in the ways that I am able, I'm, I'm moved by it. It's something I come back to, but it is something I, I don't think I have a great sense of. I mean, it's, Poetry is one of these areas where when I engage it, I almost always am asking someone to help me understand it. Yeah. Yeah, we're not really like the kinds of education most of us get. Poetry is just, you know, it's it's flourish, right? It's it's a it has a kind of um, we sense that it's beautifying, it's meant to, it's meant to dignify moments of of joy and sorrow, but we don't see it as elemental to our lives, as core to what to right. the work that we do as theologians, as ministers. We we don't see it as essential to being alive. I, I think and, and I think it is. I think some of our wisest teachers have recognized that Audre Lord has that wonderful essay, Poetry is not a luxury. Poetry is not a luxury. And that and that seems right to me. That's it's not a luxury for life. It's not a luxury for life as a man or a woman, a father or mother, a son or a daughter. It's not a luxury for a pastor or a theologian. So I think that's where I would begin. It it, it is it is elemental to the work that we do. And so maybe, you know, maybe we can get into why that is and, and how that is. Eugene Peterson, I think, sensed this as well, right? That that Peterson recognized that that pastoral work is is dependent upon poetic sensitivities. Yeah. And our, our lack of the lack of poetry in our preaching, in our praying, in our, in our worship is it's telling us about a lack in the integrity and vitality of our spirit. Even the lack of maybe recognition of poetry. Yes. <laughs> like when we, when we read it, and not realizing it, even in the scriptures. Um, yeah, I remember, I mean, it's probably more than 10 years ago at this point, but I was listening to a talk or an interview or something from Rowan Williams. And he, he had this, you know, comment in there about naming it as essential. Like, I mean, to your point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember hearing that and thinking, oh my gosh, yeah. like he's naming something as essential that I have zero. I mean, not even. I don't even know if I could have said I had the appetite for it, but I definitely wasn't seeking it out. Yeah. I, I do think there's a prejudice, like in the, you know, the folks I grew up around, I mean, the, the old school sweaty Pentecostals, they would never have talked about what they were doing as poetry. They would have thought of a poetry as highbrow. Mm-hmm. But our sermons, our songs, I mean, we're at their best. We're we're absolutely poetic. We're in touch yes. because they were in touch with the poetry of Scripture as given in the King James, mm-hmm. right? Like the not just in the Bible, but particularly in the translation of the Bible that had shaped the consciousness of preachers and songwriters in my 
in my world. So I think of someone like Claude Ely, the songs that he's writing, I mean, they're folksy. The folksy is, I mean, they're more folksy than most folk music can ever be, but they're poetry. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he's, he has worked that through a particular Pentecostal, I, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but a certain kind of hillbilly sensibility, yeah. but it's, it's no less poetic for that. It might not be highbrow, but it's poetry. So I think a lot of us are are caught up in poetry without realizing that's what we're caught up in. We think of poetry as stuff that is is for academics or for people in other in other circles than ours. But but our scripture is full of it. Our preaching at, at its best is dependent upon it. Our prayers and our songs are are moved by it so i i think we're probably more comfortable with it than we realize just it often goes by other names Hmm. yeah i hear that that said it should be more like the the reading writing reflection on poetry should be more at the core of what we're doing than it is so even though i think we're doing more of it than we realize we're not doing enough in in my judgment Mm mm-hmm Well, I mean, where do you want to start? I think we can start. I will start with something that I I learned from Jensen. That theology, and let's let's focus specifically on theology, the work of theology, yeah, as it relates to poetry. That, and th- these are my words, not his. But I I don't think I could have thought these words without reading him, right? Without listening to him, and that is theology at its limits becomes either poetry or nonsense theology at its limits at its extremes becomes either poetry or nonsense mm-hmm. and I, I, he he talks a lot at the at the end of his the second volume of his systematics he talks a lot about theology theology of the last judgment theology of angels theology of the appearing of christ theology of the age to come as necessarily poetic like we have to shift into poetry and and or into music in order to to continue the trajectory our theology is on and i think you can say the same is true of the beginnings of theology so to put it just as directly as i can i think theology begins and ends in poetry it begins with wonder or it begins with some kind of difficulty that has been put on us in in a way we can sense is meaningful, but we don't know how to make the meaning make meaning of it. I think that's what poetry does at its best. I don't know if you've read much of the poetry of Jeffrey Hill, but it's really difficult. And he's one of those poets. I I think I'm even more interested in what he says about his poems than I am about his poetry. Mm-hmm. But he he loves to quote this line from Isaac Rosenberg, who was a another of Anglican poet or not anglican but anglo poet english poet so rosenberg says somewhere and i don't know because i've only heard jeffrey hill say this but that poetry is and i'm not quoting this exactly but poetry is keeping the complexity of thought in the right tone so that this understandable idea is presented but is still ungraspable so but what poetry does is it brings this kind of complexity to you 
in a way that's simple enough that you can feel it and sense what it means, mm-hmm. but you recognize that you don't grasp it all. Right? So it kind of, it's got a weightiness to it, which creates, I think, curiosity or troubledness. You know, Karen Kilby has that wonderful line, theology begins in troubledness. Yeah. And of course, much of the philosophical tradition is insisted following Plato that philosophy begins in wonder. Well, I think really what we're talking about, poetry kind of brings us to this place of wonder or troubledness because it it suggests something to us that we know is meaningful, but we can't catch up to what the meaning is in its fullness. Mm-hmm. And, I, and this is often... There's poetry everywhere. I don't only mean in poems, right? Someone, a a turn of phrase said casually in a conversation can be poetic in a way that catches our attention and we feel something of the weightiness of it, right? So when I say poetry, I don't simply mean the stuff that might get taught in a poetry class to undergraduates. I mean, ways of speaking that are unusual enough that they can capture, capture is not the right metaphor, but there are ways of speaking that are unusual enough that they they startle us into a new kind of attention. Yeah. And I, I'm using poetry here in, in a pretty expansive way. Now, the best poems do that. Songs do that. But it can happen at any time if we're paying attention. Mm-hmm. And so when you're when you're naming it as being essential to to theological work or like going back to Jensen, like I mean, I guess I take what he's saying to be if if the work is worth anything, if it's if it's faithful, mm-hmm. then this is where it's going to end. And precisely because theological work is work about God. Well, yes, absolutely. But it's also work about all things when they are brought into God and God Mm -hmm. is brought into all things. So Mm -hmm. yes, it's, it is at its heart. It is about God, the, the one whose name is above every name, right? The, but theology is concerned with everything as it relates to God and as it exists in God, as well as everything about God that we, that's been revealed to us. So yes, we we should have our words to quote Rowan Williams again. I mean, look at his his book, The Edge of Words. What he's yeah. saying there about poetry, like poetry is language that's been put under pressure. So if we're talking about God and everything else in light of God, well, then it starts to that work of trying to talk about it well puts pressure on our language, and out of that, sometimes language breaks, and we have to break off and say, I don't know how to say it. You know, like the end of Romans 11, where Paul is. Yeah, breaks so out into that doxology. Breaks out into doxology, right? Because his, yeah, his yeah. words, the pressure's too great, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's one way of thinking about what speaking in tongues is for Pentecostals. It's like words kind of shatter under the weight of the glory that is ascribed to God. But I, I think there's other ways in which certain phrases crystallize under that pressure rather than being shattered or breaking off into silence or breaking off into ecstasy, certain sentences can, can, can be formed like in the fire of that almost um, forged by the pressure of praising God. And 
or crying out to God. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be praise. I mean, speech at its extremes, you know, heights or depths Mm -hmm. or the extremes of weirdness. I think there's pressure there at all of those points, right? When, when things are too good to be spoken or too bad to be spoken or just too strange to be spoken, Mm -hmm. our words, our familiar turns of phrase get pressurized and sometimes they get shattered but sometimes new forms of turn new turns of phrase appear new language shows up and i think that's that's one way of thinking about poetry at its best and again not just poems poetry right and and that can show up again in sermons and song lyrics it can show up in it can be translated out of words into other forms of art painting or architecture or whatever else but i think there's a that is an important dimension of what makes something poetic it's kind of formed into an unforgettable shape well i think i mean i don't want to do the line i don't want to do injustice to poetry is not a luxury by trying to unpack it in ways that become something other than poetic but i mean thinking about its essential nature if you could just say a little bit more about that for me i mean because i I guess what i'm thinking is when i think about that pressure the heights the depths whatever direction those kind of boundaries that part of the reason that it's essential is because um and humanizing is because that speaks to a more fully orbed life (laughs) we need to be brought to those boundaries. We, we need to discover yeah. our own boundaries. Yeah. And something right. like that. But so, I mean, I, I, yeah. there are a couple of things I would name, sorry to interrupt, but I think a couple of things I would name just to start. I mean, what Lord means in her essay, she's talking specifically about women as a black woman. How, like, how is this poetry essential to resistance to the pressures that want to deform our lives that want to oppress us? Like, how do we, like poetry becomes a, an act of resistance to that. And, and there's a line in there. And again, I'm not quoting, I don't have it in front of me, but she says something about how poetry creates the quality of light in which we see everything else and understand ourselves. And so like the, and I, I, what I hear in that is what makes something poetic is in part, it's unusualness. It's something that is almost ordinary but it gets under the pressures of experience, under the pressures of inspiration. Somehow a line, a, a several lines, an image, something happens to some words that make it unusual in a way that arrests our attention, like brings us, brings our, our attention around, like the burning bush for Moses, like where suddenly our attention is on this and it illuminates for us, like it's light in that it's illuminating something ordinary that we've that we've been ignorant of we, we've not paid attention to but and and the, i don't this this can happen in all kinds of ways i mean sometimes it can happen by the quality of the rhythm or the quality of the sounds in the poem right it, apart from the imagery or the ideas in the poem just just the sound of it can be beautiful in a way that that holds our attention, right? And this, that's where poetry is most like music, 
And there's some poems that have that kind of enchanting power, not because the ideas in the poem are particularly illuminating, but just the, it's almost like the body of the poem is so beautiful that we don't even get to what's the soul of the poem. You know, like it, it's a, there's a kind of glory just in the way that it sounds. And I think, I think you get that sometimes, I mean, in all kinds of forms, but the, a lot of rap works that way, right? There's a certain kind of rhythm and delight in what's rhyming with what mm-hmm. and how those rhymes pile up. And again, yeah. at its best, it's not setting soul against body or sound against concept, but it's just important to, as we're thinking about it, to realize that words can have a kind of rhythm. They can make certain kinds of sound that draw our attention back to the world differently and help us realize this, where we are and what's happening. Um, And I I do think that poetry is cultivating, meant to cultivate a kind of attention. Pay attention to the words you're using. Pay attention to what's happening around you. And the the more careful we are with our words, perhaps we're learning to be more careful with each other, right? To to see what's actually happening, to listen to what's actually happening around us. At least that's that's the goal. Now, of course, it's not to say that if you develop poetic sensibilities, you're going to be a good person. There are lots of terrible people that are great poets. Right. And there are a lot of great people that don't have poetic sensibility. But I do think that good people often speak poetically without intending to. Let me give an example. Like my grandmother, who, I mean, she didn't graduate high school until I did. I mean, she had dropped out of school. I was graduating. So my senior year, she went back to get her high school degree finished with me. So we walked together. (laughs) And Wow. I remember like a year or two after that, she was on a panel at, at a college where I was, Julie and I met there at this college and my grandmother and my mom and my sister had all been invited up by our psychology professor to, and not just the three of them, but there were multiple groups of kind of generate women across the generations who had been invited up for this class. So my grandmother was there, my mom, her daughter, and then my sister, my mom's daughter and my grandmother's granddaughter. And they were being interviewed about, you know, what's it like to be a woman in this tradition or this family line? And the question came up in the course of my grandmother, Nan, telling her story. She's, you know, being the professors asking questions, students are asking questions. And the the question had come up about what it was like to be married and live through the depression, like to be married, to be married young, to be married at a time where things were difficult and they didn't have money. And she said, I learned not to let myself, she said, I, I never let myself want. This is how she said it. I never let myself want what I knew he couldn't give me. I never let myself want what I knew he couldn't give me. Now, that's poetry. It's mm-hmm. wisdom, but it's also memorably said. Right now, I'm here, what, 25, 30 years later, and I remember the phrasing. I didn't let myself want. I never let myself want what I knew he couldn't give me. Now, one of the reasons I remember it is it's startling. It's insightful, but the phrasing itself 
drew my attention to the insight. Right? Now that could be said other ways that wouldn't have the same, the same, they wouldn't be formed in the same way. And Nan was not a poet. <laughs> like she, and she was certainly not trying to be a poet. Yeah. So I, I think even though we, we don't want to draw the nines too straight, good people don't always speak poetically and bad people sometimes do. And there are plenty of terrible people who have a real poetic ear, right? an ear for the po- for poetry. But there is something to be said about when truth is said beautifully, we sense the goodness of it. Yeah. And I think that was what was happening in that moment. Would you say more about, I mean, because I'm thinking about, you're talking about Nan, thinking about your upbringing, but about poetry and scripture. I mean, particularly you referenced the kind of, the rhyme uh, of the King James Version in your, yeah. which was used exclusively, I think, right? And for you growing up. Yes. But it's not just, but it's not just based on, I mean, what tradition there it, or what uh, version you're using. I mean, there is yeah. poetry yeah, 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 full yeah. stop in scripture. Yeah, 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 exactly. In whatever, whatever translation you're reading, it, it was written as poetry, right? It was, it was first conceived as poetry. Absolutely. In fact, you know, and Eugene Peterson, again, is so helpful on this huge, huge swaths of the Bible are not just the Psalms, you know, the, the prophets are essentially poets. And you know, I just we'll talk about this when we talk tomorrow about Epiphany, but Isaiah. So Matthew's Magi story is based on Isaiah's sixty, a poem from Isaiah sixty. What we have is Isaiah sixty. That is itself based on a poem Isaiah nine, and like that, that poetry gets worked out in the story of the Magi that becomes this focal image for the Gospel of Matthew that becomes mm-hmm. basic to the story of Christmas and, and epiphany in the life of Jesus. So yeah, absolutely. That's scripture doesn't make sense apart from the poetry in it. It doesn't hold together apart from the poetry in it. Yeah. And I think for, I think about David, for example, like it's not an accident that what we know of him as a character is tied up to him as the musician and poet that he is. I mean, his, his love for God, his delight in his life and the work he is doing in the world. I mean, it comes out in his songs and in the poems that he writes. And, and of course that's, we, we often think of Israel's scriptures as primarily story and I think the narrative is certainly core, but the stories are poetically told. Yeah. Right. They're, they're told in ways that, that are essential to what the stories mean. The telling of the story is not accidentally, it, the, the form of it isn't accidental to the, to the story itself.
Yeah. Which I, I guess just goes to speak further, maybe to that, to that essential nature, right? These stories that are being used in, uh, uh, by the spirit, or that's not exactly how I want to say it, that language of use, but regardless in, in ways that are for mm-hmm. our good humanizing ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think our, our language needs to be made extraordinary. At least mm-hmm. at times we need what we're saying and what we're hearing to, to shine with different light, to, to move with a kind of different rhythm and poetry enables us to do that. Not everything is poetry and, and shouldn't be, but at times we need it to be, and we need to know how to recognize it and how to take it up. And, and I think we just like, we need songs. We need, and, and especially, especially we recognize the need for it in the, the, the extreme moments of our life. Right. So we know we need it at birth and death. We know we need it when we're the heights of joy or the depths of sorrow what I'm contending for is that's true, but we need it all the time. Yeah. We need that at work in us right? to, to create that, the, the character of the light in which we live, right? Needs to have a poetic sense. Again, not everything is poetry. We're not all poets, but we need poetic sensibility. We need to be able to recognize it when we hear it. We need to be able to, to move toward it when we recognize the need to speak differently. And I mean that as theologians, I mean that as ministers, I mean that as friends, husbands, what, like we, we've got to push for that. And, and I think we, we, we sense that we know that we just need to be more intentional about it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess this is, this is the reason why you use poetry and, in your courses. I mean, I, I mean, I probably, I don't know if I remember a course where you didn't use poetry at some point in there. I mean, you obviously use it. I mean, I think about even your most recent book, all things beautiful. I mean, poetry is throughout the classics, poems of others, some of your own poetry, Mm -hmm. uh, but poetry is throughout the book. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think I can think as a theologian without thinking from and to poetry. Like, like I was saying, I I think that's, and I don't think that's peculiar to me. I think that's how theology works. And because theology is a, is a peculiar form of speech. I mean, we're trying to bring to speech in, in ways that tell the truth beautifully. What, reality is when it's seen in light of the faith we have in this God that has been revealed to us. So yeah, I absolutely does. Poetry is, is basic to, and and to my preaching too. I mean, it it is, I don't, I I wouldn't know how to do it without that. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would be helpful to, to look at a few poems Mm -hmm. and let's see. What emerges? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus for the sake of this conversation on poems I've written 
and I'll, I'll, I'll share a few that I've written fairly recently that I think are fitted to this season. Um, of course, in my classes, I don't only use poems I've written, but I, I've found that often, you know, insight comes to me already formed in that way, right? already, you know, with a, a, a particular phrase around which a, a poem will turn. One that, that has come up recently is Mary, full of grace. And one day I yeah. just, I, I was overhearing the the hail mary and i just heard it differently i mean i just heard instead of hail like greetings i heard hell like hell mary yeah and, and instead of full of grace in the sense of you know sharing an abundance of of god's favor i heard fool of grace and and suddenly it all like sounded and felt different to me and different in in a playful way and an almost sacrilegious way but i i i do believe and i've talked about this before i think theology precisely to do its job well sometimes has to verge on the irreverent right? yeah. so it, it, and certainly that's true of scripture i mean the the prophets are are filled with irreverence this is one of the things that i think is best about Eugene Peterson's translations is that he wasn't afraid of irreverence. And I I don't think you can be a good preacher or a good theologian, a good therapist or a good friend. If you don't have a, a, you know, a sense of when to be inappropriate, like what's the appropriate moment to act inappropriately or to speak inappropriately. Mm -hmm. And I think like David, remember when he's before King Achish and he is, is the king is trying to force him to fight against Saul and the, and Israel. And David plays mad, plays as if he's lost his mind. And I think there's a way in which good preaching, good theology and good conversation and, and good counsel, good therapy is, is able and willing to play the fool. And and I suddenly heard that. I'll, I'll share it with you if if you're cool with it. Please do. Let me just mention this, Chris. That there is. I can't remember who. I just remember it happening. I don't think you're on Facebook, so you didn't see it. But a friend of, I think it was a friend of ours who posted, found this poem of yours, posted it without any context, and it just <laughs> erupted in the comments. Oh, I've heard about <laughs> this. Yes, I didn't see it. Thank God. But yes. <laughs> People, people were who were some people who just adored it and others who were like, what, what is happening? And <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. They were, you were pushing them to their limits. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is, which is the point now, maybe it needed a bit of context. I don't know how poetry works in social media, but for, for what it's worth, here's, here's the poem. Hell, Mary, full of grace, the low roads in thee. Based art thou amongst women, and based the fruit of thy wound, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, play for us shimmers now and at the flowering of our death. So obviously you've got that kind of initial line, my hearing it, my my odd hearing of it. Hell, Mary, full of grace. And then I just, I set myself to the task of how might these lines be heard otherwise? So instead of 
the Lord is with thee. What I what I heard was the low road is in thee. Mm-hmm. Like the, the 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 humility of God, God's willingness to take the low road. It's it's at work in you, right? And she says of herself, you know, in her own poem, right, that the Lord has looked on the lowliness of his servant. Yes. And I think I think, you know, in Luke's gospel, which is kind of at the heart of Pentecostal spirituality, the this poetry, and think about how different the poetry at the beginning of Luke is from the silence at the beginning of Matthew, right? In Matthew, the characters hardly speak. All of this stuff is happening in darkness, in in dreams, which dreams are their own kind of poetry. But in in Luke, you get an explosion of song and poem, and yeah. and Mary's is at the heart of all that. So that what I'm playing on in the next line, instead of "Blessed art thou," "Based art thou," which of course is a a little bit of irreverence in which, you know, the kids these days talk about something being based, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's great. It's cool or whatever, but also of course, the ways in which uh, that's another reiterating the point that she's low. Yeah. It's something is base in the sense that it's basic. It's low and that she is art. She is herself art. God has made. So she's based art. And her lowliness is is beautiful in the creation in the creativity of God. Yeah, I didn't and, even catch that the first time that you capitalized that base yeah. arch, naming her right. She is the art mm-hmm. that God is making. Right, God is is the artist. She's the art, and there's fruit of her wound, not just her womb. You know the the ways in which she she suffers. Her own piercings yeah. are are beautiful too, and to name her as the mother of God plays on a couple of things. One, obviously, again, you get the irreverence, but also this sense in which Mary's lack of eloquence. Right. So this is a poem about a woman who's a poet, whose life is poetry, and yet so much of what she experiences doesn't feel like poetry, mm-hmm. and it's easy to mishear what she's saying. Uh, no doubt the people around her misheard. And I, I I love this notion of how poetry, there's another poem, which I'm not going to share now. I don't even, I don't even know if I can find it, but I, which I talk about stuttering and Moses stuttering as being the poetry of God. Mm-hmm. When God speaks, he's the one who has no beauty that we should desire. And often his words force us to stutter in the way that, that Moses did. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I think returning to that here with this, the way I'm hearing mother of God is mother of God and then play as a play on pray and shimmers instead of sinners, right? Shimmers in the sense of we're ephemeral, we're vanishing, it's it's vapor but also beautiful like a shimmering light you know that there's a there's a way in which our lives are quick but but there's light shining on them and in them and and of course that's how the line finishes now and at the flowering of our death yeah that that 
the death is beautified. It's the to quote Maximus, right? The, Jesus has changed the use of death. He's altered its function, and so death is a is a kind of flowering. So, I mean that that's what I that's what I heard in in that poem. Let me yeah. let me give a couple more examples and tell the story okay. about just to make the make the point, and then you jump in with questions or responses you want. So recently, I'll give two two stories. One, the when I was going down to my parents for Christmas Eve, so we we are driving down to to spend. It's the we're da- we're driving down on Christmas Eve Eve because we're going to spend Christmas Eve with them and then drive back for midnight mass at our church and home for Christmas day. And for whatever reason, I'd been thinking a lot about Joseph anyway, but Joseph Mary's husband. And for whatever reason, on our way down that day, I just suddenly had this thought. I wonder what was heavy for you. Like what was weighing on Joseph when he was going back to his family? You know, you remember the gospel account, right? That, Caesar Augustus has declared that all the world should be taxed. And so Joseph has to go back to the, the seat of his ancestry, the house of David, Bethlehem, to be registered. That's why Christ is born in Bethlehem. And so I, but for whatever reason, even for the first time in my life, I was thinking, I suddenly thought about what was Joseph brooding on when they were making that journey? Right. It's easy to ma- imagine what Mary was thinking about, what she was pondering in her heart. But what was what was Joseph pondering? So that night when I got there, when I, I thought about it all day and that night after everybody went to bed, I just wrote this, wrote this out, which I'll read to you now. And it's just it's entitled A Late Night Christmas Eve Letter to St. Joseph. When you labored your way back to your clan, Mary. Your Mary was already thick with child. Today, though, here in my father's house, I can't help but wonder, not at her burden, but yours. What weighed so heavy on you? St. Luke, always sure of his work, says Caesar ordered all the world to be polled, everyone counted in their ancestral home. A policy so patently insane, only a man convinced he's a god, could ever have become pig-headed enough to conceive it. As you neared the city, I know it was no little town for you. I doubt you gave any of that madness any thought, however. Nothing is as taxing as family, is it? Still, anxiety can't be what silenced you. No, your quiet sheltered a secret, deep and dangerous, to every grief. So although I don't quite know how to say it, I need you to pray for me, if you can, without saying a word. I'll give you first go if there's anything that strikes you or that you want to raise about it. Well, I mean, I think... I mean that la it's the last stanza of course that I'm drawn to the most. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And especially this line, 
know your quiet sheltered a secret deep and dangerous to every grief yeah and I, I guess I feel some of what we talked about earlier which is kind of push the limits I feel something there I don't know that I can explicate it though <laughs> yeah so a couple of things I can speak at or talk to and you can see if that's sensing it there if if this is what you're sensing I guess so this poem is is v- verging on the on prose. I mean, there's it's conversational, mm-hmm. and it, it I mean it's even entitled a letter. But there are a couple things it does as poetry. One is there are a couple of lines. Nothing is as taxing as family, is it? Right, right. That that's what I mean by a sentence that's been kind of formed under pressure. Mm-hmm. Right, and then. This line break, so those who are listening don't see it. You can see it if you've got it in front of you. But the line is, know you're quiet, sheltered a secret, deep and dangerous to every grief. And I think part of the power of it is that break, that the the secret is deep and dangerous for just a breath. And then you realize what it's dangerous to. Right, that that secret that Joseph is holding is a is a threat, not to Joseph, not to Mary, not to anyone, but to grief. God is the destroyer yeah. of the destroyers of the earth. Right, God is against yeah. everything that is against us. Mm-hmm. And so, I I think part of the power of it is that breath you're forced to take by the line break, secret, deep, and dangerous to every grief. So you're getting the discovery of God's goodness that comes in that next line. Mm-hmm. Right, that you're and and the line break is forcing you to take that breath before you get that good news. So it, it's it's just a dangerous secret for a moment, and then you realize, yes, it is a dangerous secret, but it's not dangerous to me. It's dangerous on my behalf. It's dangerous against the grief. So I think that's at least some of what you're sensing. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, but there there's more to it in that. Of course, this is a story about them not finding shelter, right? They, there's no room found for them in the end. And yet this line suggests Joseph is the shelter. And we think of Mary as being pregnant, but this, is, this line is saying Joseph is pregnant too, right? He's pregnant with the same secret Mary's pregnant with. That same word that's in her in one way is in him in another way. And we might even say if the word is incarnate in Mary's belly. It's inspirited in Joseph's heart. Mm-hmm. And I think you're sensing some of that in the line too, right? That his quiet is sheltering a secret. Like he, inside of him, the word is, is taking shape. Yeah. And of course, all of this it. is, I love that. Yeah. Part, part of this is drawn from the realization that Joseph never says a word in scripture. And that's what you get in that last line. So sometimes a poem communicates itself on its own terms. But a lot of stuff that I do, it only really kind of works if you know the texts I'm engaging. Mm-hmm. You know, not always, but often. And in this case, I think this poem makes a lot more sense the better you know 
the nativity stories in Matthew and Luke. And you realize the ways in which that's being played on. Yeah, so when I say at the end, I need you to pray for me if you can, without saying a word. Like there's a double edge there, right? Joseph doesn't, I mean, yeah, Joseph doesn't speak in scripture. So is the point of, is the request, can you pray for me because you don't say a word? Or I need you to pray for me specifically without saying a word. Like I need the prayer you offer to be a wordless one. Right. Because of what I'm dealing with. Again, remember that I'm writing this as someone sitting alone in my father's house. Right. Something's weighing on me. Mm -hmm. Right. And the on this Christmas Eve, right? I'm I'm back in my father's house. I'm being taxed. Nothing is as taxing <laughs> as family. Yeah. And so I, I need I need this without saying a word because what I'm dealing with is I, I can't bring it to speech. Maybe we can do a couple more. Let me let me do let me shift to one that I wrote right after I had my stroke. So I'm March of this year or March of last year, not this year. I had a stroke, as you know, and then two days later, I had another mini stroke. And so I'm in the hospital and I had, I don't know what to call it other than a vision. And I saw Mary and she was, and, and I don't know what tribe, but she was a native American woman, like with a, the blanket around her and the feather in her hair. And I think, I think there are reasons that this came to me and I'm, we can get into it if you want to, but that's how I saw her. And she was, it was at night and she was amongst these horses that I knew I could see were the horses of the apocalypse. So the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse, which is green in scripture and the I've forgotten what the other color is. Um, it'll come to me in a moment, but I could see her with these horses and in the moment she's just kind of in the middle of them and and there's a you know how dreams and visions work it was surreal and they were like floating around her like at first they were kind of prancing and walking and then and then flying and floating and and then it just became a blur of movement and in that moment, what I sensed was she was talking to them so that only Jesus could ride them. So these are the horses of the apocalypse. I've just had a, 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 what the doctor called a mortality event. So I'm looking at the, the end of my life. I'm looking at my apocalypse. And what comes to me, I think is a grace, is an image of Mary whispering to the horses of the apocalypse, making sure that only Jesus can ride these horses. And so this poem came from that. And I wrote this in the hospital, uh, made very, if, if any changes, I've made very few changes since then. It's entitled, Our Lady Calms the Four Horses of the Apocalypse. They flurry about her, majestic, motes in the plains light, gently eddying swirls of sage and soot, flame and salt. Blanketed in stars, she moons over them, balletic and luminous in the globes of their ancient eyes. 
And what she whispers, I cannot hear, but know it binds them to her son, spells them for his weight, his alone. And I see their painted backs thrill to it, nostrils flaring, wild necks bent and thrown in the native marvel of their design. When at last he comes, I see he is not striding, but stumbling, uncrowned and thunderless, clasping the halves of a newly broken bow. And there's blood in his eyes, blood in his fists, and the side of his robe is soaked. Thoughts? Senses? I mean, anything... What lines resonate for you or, or kind of tremor? Yeah. Well, I mean, I moved it to years. <laughs> I mean, I so much, but I mean, just this this vision of her. I mean, and the way that you're playing. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, there's such. I mean, because it's so it's deadly serious. I mean, you know, deadly everything about it. I mean, you're right. Like you are, you're having this mortality event, not knowing what it means. You're seeing the end. And, and this is, I mean, it's apocalyptic right through and through. And yet this kind of blanketed in the stars, she moons over them. Mm balletic and luminous in the globes of their ancient eyes so i mean there's 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 that but also this kind of uh, this enchantment that that takes place these whispers i I am just well i I don't know if the poem accomplishes it but i think if it were a great poem it would do what the poem is talking about you know and i think there is some of that. You can feel some of the, the poem is doing to you what she's doing to the horses. Mm-hmm. At least that's, that, that's what I'm sensing. And a lot of these lines, like in, including the, their wild necks bent and thrown in the native marvel of their design. I mean, this, this arrived kind of out of nowhere. So with the vision came these, these words, right? I didn't fashion them from nothing. Like they, they showed up. So I worked on the poem in terms of where the line breaks are and and some of this language I found, but a lot of it just showed up with, and that, that since that line in particular, the native marvel of their design, I mean, it, it evokes so much about seeing this native American woman. It's drawing attention to the ways in which that wildness God has sown there, which I think I mean, it, for me, it evokes so much about the apocalypse of native american peoples here you know that it's not an accident i'm i shouldn't say it's not an accident it's not it's not irrelevant to me looking back on it that i'm there in a hospital in indian territory that that this land belonged to tribes belonged to those people and that when i have that vision when when god gives me this moment of seeing Mary enchanting these horses. I don't know how to explain it, but I don't think it's an accident that she comes in that guise, in the guise of the peoples who were here first. 
Yeah. And, and I didn't devise that. Like I didn't, I, I think I'm, I'm struck by it. I think it's, it's a pregnant image, but I didn't invent it. It didn't come up from me and from nothing, you know, like that. It appeared, it showed itself. And I, I do think that that's important. Like poetry is work, but it's work on things that just happen. You can't make it from nothing. Well, that's just when I mean, you can't create anything from nothing, not a story, not a song, not a sculpture. Like there, there has to be something that shows up that happens to you. And, and then it, the work begins with what do I do with this? That's happened to me. Like, how do I honor it appropriately? And the, well, but anything else you want to say? I, I want to say one more comment about the poem because it's a, another thing that surprised me. But I, I don't want to bleed over what you're saying. Well, I think too, Chris, I mean, something that this this evokes for me is, and I didn't, I don't know that I put this together the first time I I read this um, after you wrote it, but reading it, hearing you read it, right now is reminding me of that encounter you had with that piece of art as a child. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I had to just say something about that because I can't. That's right. uh, I have a picture. I found it after you, after I first heard you talk about it, I have it. Uh, But yeah, yeah, I mean, just say something about that. I, I had not thought about this either, Chris. That's a really good observation on your part. So when I was very young, I do write about some of this in All Things Beautiful. When I was very young, my parents took me to a museum. I was I was like every other boy my age in my part of the world. I was interested in cowboys and Indians. They took me to a Native American museum that in, included like old weapons and memorabilia, whatever, but it also had paintings. And I saw Enoch Kelly Haney's original Emptiness Has a Claim on Death, which we'll add to, I'll, I'll include it for for those who, who receive the newsletter and those of you who are listening to the podcast if you go on the site you'll be able to see the image but it's a painting of a native american warrior i don't i don't know the tribe i should but i don't and i think haney was kiowa but don't quote me on that but the warrior is kind of on a hillside and his his middles are transparent like he's emptied out right and you can see that he's grieving that that he's and as a kid, I mean, I, I had no, no sense of why, but that image arrested me. I mean, it, it froze me. And when my parents found me, I was just standing in front of it crying. And I mean, I'm little, I'm seven, eight years old. And I, as I talk about in the book, I, in some ways, I think that was a beginning of theology for me. Like, what was it about that image? So you're right. I had not made the connection to this poem, but there is that image again, something native, quote unquote, an ancient rising up at, at at my extreme. You know, that happened to me when I was a boy. This happened to me as a 46-year-old man. But I, I, I don't I don't think I understand all of the reasons, but I know I don't understand all the reasons, but that's your right to draw attention to it. And notice in the poem. What I see is Mary enchanting these horses to be ridden only by Jesus, his, her son and his weight, his alone. 
and they and they're delighting in it like they can't wait for christ to ride but then what happens in the second stanza of the poem and this again just appeared to me not in an image but in in words is that he doesn't come riding at all he comes not even striding but stumbling yeah so what 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 you're picturing at first is that he's going to come as the the triumphant warrior the brave who's conquering all but back to that Enoch Kelly Haney painting he comes as someone who's victorious but wounded mm-hmm. uncrowned and thunderless stumbling and this clasping the halves of a newly broken bow and I'm I'm almost certain I don't know I'd have to go back and look but I'm almost certain that that came to me out of the revelation course I was a part of at the time the open table study of the apocalypse and what's happening with the bow in revelation and that 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 it's a broken bow which again i'm not that far from broken bow oklahoma which is named that for a reason right when i'm writing this but here here christ comes as as the brave that has been struck down there's blood in his eyes blood in his fists and the side of his robe is soaked it's his own blood not his enemy's blood that he comes wearing so when the the, you know i I probably shouldn't say too much but i think that move which i did not intend i didn't consciously choose it i think that's the very move the apocalypse itself makes you know i hear about the line of tribe of judah but when i turn what i see is the lamb slain so here you're you're hearing about this warrior who's going to ride the horses of the apocalypse but when you see him He's bloodied with his own blood, and the bow is broken. Maybe right. a couple more. Be anything yeah, else about that one you want to? Uh, no, I want to end with one. Um, on well, here's a, here's a little one. It's just called a blessing for an aspiring theologian, which is great. So for those of you who've gotten this far, this is for you, right? Those of you who are called to be theologians. Lord willing, you will fall, not too soon, if all goes well, wholly quiet, dumbly adoring like the ox, the one who makes your words straw to gild this rough winter manger. Lots how's of the, how's this a lots of <laughs> lots of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, that's right. Yes, the dumb ox here. speaks loudly here. Yes. Yeah. So those of you who don't know Thomas Aquinas, you know, comes to be known as the dumb ox, and that's, that's part of his legend. And at the end of his life, also part of his legend is this this vision he has at the Lord's table, after which he refuses to write any more theology and says, you know, all that I've written is seems like straw. So what's happening here in the poem is again, a blessing for someone who's aspiring, who's starting the process of being a theologian. And the word at the beginning is at some point, Lord willing, you will fall. Not too soon. Right. So we don't want this to be immediate. You need to develop. You need to build. You need to grow. But if all goes well, you will fall quiet. 
the way that Thomas did at the end of his life, right? The way that Maximus did, although not by his choice, when his hand was cut off and his tongue cut out. But at the end, you will grow quiet, dumbly adoring. So obviously, dumbly there is reference to silence, but also to this ways in which I think if we do theology well, we end up getting stupefied by the glory of it. Right, that there's a way, if if it's dumb at the beginning, that's a sign that you haven't done the work. But if you do the work and it reduces you to silence, that's something else, right? It's like pilots, what is truth? If you ask it at the beginning, it initiates a conversation. If you ask it at the end, it's a refusal to take seriously what's happened. And so I think the William Golding made that observation but when you when you turn this around there's a way in which theology should leave us stupefied it should leave us dumb in that sense and and the less dumb it is if i can put it like that the more likely it is to bring that about in the end Mm -hmm. right and so i think you get that here and to be dumb specifically like the ox so it's that's thomas aquinas but it's also back to the ox at the manger this is you know a seasonally appropriate poem because it's the ox and the ass at the cradle and what we're adoring or who we're adoring is the one who makes our words so the creator the word himself i have another poem somewhere you word made words and you made me so why can't i say what i mean right that that god is the one who makes us makes our words but then you get that line break and what god makes our words is straw which again is what made thomas saint thomas stop writing how could i say how could i write anything any theology after what i've seen and yet what i'm doing in the poem is suggesting no he makes our words straw not to burn up but to to gild or to to fill out this manger for this baby so that theology then becomes dumbly adoring god with our words in such a way that there's there's a place for the christ child to be adored that our words are the the hay in the manger our our words about god are the hay in the manger in which the christ child can be visited by the shepherds and by the magi yeah theology is at the end right incredible i mean i love that move i mean because it's such a it it puts it in its place that's both incredibly, I mean, it's simultaneously humbling, but also just how incredible, right? I mean. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, that, that's right. I think it is. I mean, that's, that's the theologian's task. And it's a, it's a rough winter manger. Right? Like that <laughs> yeah. you're, you're going to be doing this work under unfriendly conditions. Yeah. And your, your, your job is to make it so that the Christ child can be warm when there isn't warmth. Like that, that there's a way theology's work isn't anything but straw. That's all it is. But straw has its place too in the cradle when the Christ child's body is what's placed on it. Yeah. So I, I think to me that it is, it is humbling, but it's also, I don't know if defiance the right word, but there's, there's a kind of, um, the way in which like C.S. Lewis and his, in his fiction, like in nobles, the the mouse repeat right yes that, 
or ennobles the badgers, the, the beavers. Like there's a there's something like that happening here. I think not to yeah. compare myself to C.S. Lewis, but <laughs> God have mercy. Yeah. I do have a son named Clive, so there's that. Okay, a couple more, and I'll 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 move through these. This is theology that happened after I read theology. I mean, a poem that happened after I read theology. So I was reading Jacques Maritain, a series of letters. I, I've been reading a lot of them, but I was this specific poem came out of. Um, I don't even remember who they were exchanged with, but they were. It was from his letters. He was writing back and forth with a friend about guardian angels, and I, I read it. I wept reading it. And for days, I just kept going back to it. And there were a couple of lines that suddenly started appearing, including these opening lines that just kept showing up again for me again and again. And and so I wrote them down. This poem took a long time to write. It didn't come fully formed. And but the what I had encountered in reading Maritain, like I, I couldn't let go of it and I still can't. So you'll see just one thing to notice how the lines are in they're paired so that yeah. each stanza is a couple of lines so they're they're matched and, th and that's on purpose so here this is called lines for a friend after reading jacques meriting the angels that guard us yours and mine have been watching each other for the longest time seeing themselves as they see us and all that's ours in the blacks of jesus eyes swooning arcing over us bright with accomplishment incensed at what we've suffered quickened by the father's delight in our every aching awkwardness they tremble with pleasure knowing what we for now cannot leviathan is the proof of love and yet all this while we've held impossibly a secret kept for them Lucifer, first son of the morning, shall at last be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, choiring heaven's hosts for the divine encore, without a doubt beside himself with joy. And then, all things shall swell in singing his song, the psalm of the evening, the praise waiting from before the rising of the worlds to be song. Chris, stylistically, what's the? I'm, will people be able to see this? Are you going to post this? Oh, I think I will. I think I'll post the poem so people, yeah, can can read along along with that image you mentioned. Tell me about the decision for the how you did that pairing, those pairings, because it's lines for a friend. So you've got two, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm imagining the two of us and our guardian angels. So we're paired and they are too. Right, right, right. And they're guarding us. And their guarding of us is in the face of Jesus. So, I mean, the scripture talks about a couple of these lines that jumped to me. One of them was this, that they have been watching each other for the longest time, seeing themselves as they see us and all that's ours in the blacks of Jesus eyes. What, what we're told about guardian angels is that they are always beholding the face of the father 
and to see Jesus is to see the Father. So I think the reason this line, these lines came to me like that is the ways in which the angels guard us is by seeing what's true of Jesus knowing of us. But I, And this was not intentional, and I don't know why this works in my head like it does, in my heart like it does. But you can see, I, in that vision I had in the hospital, I saw Mary moving in the eyes of the horses, like the her reflection in their eyes. And here I'm talking about angels moving, or angels seeing us move in Jesus' eyes. Yeah. Right? They see themselves as they see us in the blacks of Jesus eyes, right? So that the, our lives are moving in his vision of us and that's what they're seeing. And they know themselves that same way. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's paired. The lines are paired to, to bring, a, to bring that about, to draw attention to our relationship as friends and our relationship with our guardian angel angels who are with us. In the description you get there in the middle of the poem, the bright with accomplishment incensed at what what we've suffered, quickened by the Father's delight. Like those are, so angels traditionally, right, are are fiery spirits. They're, They're spirits of flame. And so there's a brightness to them. But the incense, right, is playing on a couple of things. One is the smell of offering. Mm-hmm. incense that's being offered but also incense in the sense that they're infuriated by what has ha- what we've suffered our guardian angels are angry about what has been done to us yeah and they're quickened like what gives them their suddenness which is why they're represented as having wings they're quickened by the father's delight in us and not just in us but our every aching awkwardness and then their movement is a trembling of pleasure. So what's the kind of theology you're getting here of the angelic is brightness and anger and quickness and pleasure. And what they know that we do not know is this line. And this is one of the ones that came to me and I still don't fully understand it. Honestly. Yeah. Leviathan is the proof of love. Leviathan is the proof of love. And then what what goes on from there is exactly what Maritain pictures. I mean, this the reason this poem came is that what Maritain is writing to his friend about is that Lucifer is the one who's going to be changed and the last one to be changed. That after everything else is done, Lucifer is going to be altered in some way. And he doesn't know how. He doesn't say how, but I suddenly imagined it as what if he gets to lead the song that was always his to lead? I mean, if he is the choir, if, you know, if he is the, think about all those sermons we heard about, you know, Lucifer is the choir leader in heaven. What if, what if, what if there's something to that? What if there's a way in which this figure gets to lead the song that's never, the psalm of the evening? That that it was made before the first thing, but it can't be sung until the last thing. And he's redeemed last to come and lead the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was lost in the singing of the psalm of the morning. 
right? The morning stars sing together. You know, he falls like lightning from heaven, taking some of the morning stars with him. But what if at the end, he gets to choir the whole host? One more, and then we'll stop. Anything else about that? Just gratitude. Yeah, one, one, I do want to say this thing, like the in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, like I I loved including this line because that's straight out of the King James about the rapture. Yeah. And the coming of Jesus, which terrified me as a kid. Yeah, it that's how it was used. Like a defiant act for me to say, no, what's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye is this redemption of the seemingly unredeemable and of course we know from the poem itself that that eye that's twinkling is jesus eye the one right. in which we see every the angels see everything anyway okay last one this one's called epiphanies and i this one is brand new i just wrote it within the last week or two zoe and i watched voyage of time uh, terrence malick's film about cosmic history that is just 45 minutes of glory. And when I finished watching that movie, I wrote this poem. And it's for the season of Epiphany, I think makes a good place to stop. So I'll read it. I'll let you have, ask a question and we'll stop. Epiphanies, again, is the title. How old is light? The oldest light. I'm told no lucent ever dies. Is that why the cosmos is ever expanding, stretching out the curtains of its habitations wide and wide? I am not wise. I know so little of the brightness. Who can measure the time it took for the fire of the mage's star to cross the gape of the world's black wound and fix their eyes? Could it be each at once felt the luminescence rise in the thick dark of their cradled heart? Could it be their faces shined? They must have dazzled like children. You can tell in my reading of it, this is still very tender for me, in part because it's so new. Mm I'm still being moved by what it was that moved me to write. Could you say anything about that? I mean, the just the wonder, the the, the stupendous wonder of what Malik showed, and considering the you know the oldest light is fourteen billion years old that the light from the sun we're going to see tomorrow by the time it reaches us you know we all we've all heard right that it's eight and a half minutes for that light to move from the surface of the sun to our eyes Mm -hmm. but the light that we're seeing is much older than that because it was formed in the heart of the sun and so it's 170,000 years old by the time we see it yeah and you know there there are lights we see that were burning before there were dinosaurs yeah you know so that question how old is light 
And then the realization that light and those things that are lit up, the lucent, do they ever die? And and here I'm blending what science tells us about light as a wave, as a particle, you know, that it, it'll go on forever unless something absorbs it. It'll decay or it'll be absorbed, but it doesn't die. It'll just keep going. And But what Jesus says is we will never die. That that light that is in us, if that light is in us in li- is his life, and the life is his life, then we'll never die. So I'm picking up there on that Johannine language. And then imagining the, the opening of the cosmos, you know, again, what science tells us about the universe expanding, it hit me. That's the universe stretching out the curtains of its habitation. That's, again, King James language about what God is saying to Israel, enlarge the place of your dwelling. Right, stretch out the curtains of your habitations in order to to house all that God is going to bring to you, right? To, to be more hospitable. And what if we imagine the universe as opening up for the sake of holding all the light? And again, the theme of epiphany. And then right in the middle of the poem, this kind of recognition, I'm not wise. I'm not one of the magi, right? I, I know very little of the brightness. And that's what turns to those who are magi, those who are the wise. And that question about how long did it take from the fire of their star, the one that they see rising, right? How long did it take the fire of that star to cross the gape of the world's black wound? So gape, Mm -hmm. of course, is a play there, right? So it's an opening, but it's also a looking. We talk about someone gaping. And it, it's closely, it's like gazing. Yeah. And the, it crosses, and of course that word cross is significant, crosses the gape of the world's black wound to fix their eyes. And of course that is a play both on the sense of it heals their eyes, just the scene of the star, but also it heals their eyes by transfixing their eyes, by yeah. grasping their vision. Mm-hmm. And then it ends with a couple more questions. Like all of this, right? Except for I know I'm not wise, and I'm told no lucent ever dies. Everything else is a question up to this very end. Could it be each at once felt? So these three magi, notice the lines are in threes. Could mm-hmm. it be each at once felt the luminescence rise, right? So the, the star rising in the thick dark of their cradled heart. So they're already held, right? They're all Their hearts are already the infant Jesus, held by Jesus. Could it be? Their faces shined. So the the epiphany then becomes them. Right. And then they must have dazzled dazzled like children. And it just hit me, like it still hits me, to think about the, can you imagine the joy in those men when they saw what they saw, like just to be lit up? by it like giddy i mean they made a journey from persia or wherever all the way to bethlehem to see this baby and then turn around and went home like that's crazy yeah i mean they nearly caused an international incident i mean they scared herod and all of jerusalem to death but they're kids man they're they're beside themselves and i love the thought of like the magi they're seeing a star, but they're actually the light. They're coming to the light, but they've already become light. 
just by the just by the journey. And yeah, that's, that's and then God, that's what God what? That's what God does. I mean, that's how yes. that's how our God works. Yeah. I, I love the thought, man, that just sets my imagination the the who can measure the time it took for the fire of their star. Right. Immediately what comes to my my mind is the fire of of that star that's burning before the foundations of the world. Yep. Yeah, it's it's an immeasurable time, right? Because that right. star isn't just one of the stars. Right. Like this is Maximus says that this fire is an angel. So it it is it's an immortal. Like this this fire is he even says he in in his his work on the nativity, he says that this star appears as a star until they get to the cradle and over the manger, it becomes the angel with a pointing finger to the child. So this, yeah, this is not, it's not just any star. Mm -hmm. And the wonder of all that, right? Yeah. Incredible. Well, thank you for giving me the chance to share all that. I, I think we should probably do another one. Maybe seasonally, we can kind of come back to these and share not not just my poem. I I can talk about poems that I find moving and poets that I find moving. We'll see. Um, yeah. Those who are listening, if, if this has been a helpful conversation, and you're interested in more about reading poetry, writing poetry, engaging it. Yeah, make sure you let us know so we'll know whether or not to to follow up on this. Yeah, that would be great. I would I would love to do this as some kind of seer, seasonal series or something. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Chris. Absolutely. What a and gift. I'll, uh, talk to you tomorrow. All right, man. See you.